0: Turn to John chapter 17 this morning. We are continuing to be at dinner with Jesus, as we have been for most of the fall in this passage, that's this is referred to as the upper room discourse. And here it is coming to an end. And like most dinners, particularly when Christians gather together, it ends with a prayer. And so this is Jesus' prayer for his disciples. This chapter that we're coming into, chapter 17, has been referred to as one of the most important chapters in all of Scripture. It is, um, some people have called it the Holy of Holies of Sacred Scripture. John Knox, um, the Reformer, read this, had this chapter read to him every day during his illness and in the final moments of his life. Oliver Cromwell, who was the Lord Protector of England you know, back in the 1700s, his chaplain... Preached 45 sermons on this chapter, and volumes have been written on it. Now, needless to say, then, is that I feel like I'm barely scratching the surface as we spend only the next two weeks on it. I know that some of you are hoping that I would beat uh, be Cromwell's record and hit like 46 weeks on this passage, but we're sticking to two. So, Jesus has been with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. He has been encouraging them and teaching them this truth as he's gotten down and washed their feet. A new command I give you that you love one another. He encourages them that their hearts should not be troubled, even though he tells them that he's leaving them. One of them is going to betray them and that they're all going to be scattered. He says, take heart. In this world, you will have tribulation. The world will oppose you. The world will hate you, but I have overcome the world. He encourages them and said, even though some of them would leave, he said that he is going away to prepare a place for us and that he is sending his Spirit, his spirit to dwell in us. And having given all of this teaching and the weight of the moment, Jesus concludes with this prayer at the end of dinner, where he prays for his disciples in his final prayer for them. And this is what Jesus prays in chapter 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours, Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I will speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. I have given them your world, your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. These next verses are what we're going to focus on. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Join with me in prayer. Father, we do pray that you would send your Spirit to open your word to us, to see your heart and understanding your prayer for us. And Lord, I ask that your prayer for us would become our prayer for us as well. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen. Well, as we dive into this passage here, Jesus prays for many things, but two things that we're going to focus on this morning that Jesus prays for is He prays against the ways that He is concerned that His followers will forsake Him. He is praying against the ways that His followers will forsake them, forsake Him. In particular, He is concerned and He prays against His followers... Isolating themselves from the world or assimilating themselves into the world. And instead, he prays that they would be sent into the world. And as they are sent into the world, he prays that they would be sent and that they would be sanctified. Both of these things holding together, both of these things being his desire that they would be sent and that they would be sanctified. We see this beginning in verse 15. That they are sent into the world. Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Notice that Jesus specifically prays that his followers would not be removed from the world, would not be withdrawn from the world, would not be isolated from the world, would not be taken out of the world. He prays against that and prays for them as they are sent into the world, and they are sent into the world for a very simple goal. And they are sent into the world that Jesus Christ and the Holy Father, His Father, would be known and experienced, and He would be made known. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Know God and know Jesus. To know Him means a couple of things. One is that you have to know something about God and Jesus. You need to know the truth that God created the world, that he sent Jesus, his son, who was fully God and fully man, don't quite fully understand that, into the world. And Jesus came into the darkness. He came into a world of sin and misery, into our world, living the life, a perfect life, the life that we should have lived but did not live, died on the cross and rose from the grave so that we could have life, eternal life, and a relationship with God. You need to know that. It's what you need to know in order to have a relationship with him. But this idea when it says this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and that they know Jesus Christ whom you have sent, this word here for know in biblical usage always refers to an intimacy of relationships. To know God is to have an intimate relationship with him, to have personal knowledge an active, vibrant personal relationship. We use this word similarly in our own language. If you're sitting at a restaurant and someone you're having dinner with somebody and someone comes up and talks to you and they start saying things to you, as soon as they walk away, the other person might say, do you know them? And what do they mean by when they say that? Do you know them? They don't just mean do you have some facts about them, but are they a friend of yours? Is there a relationship? Is there a depth of knowledge? Do you have some interaction? Do you know them? Is there intimacy? In the biblical usage, this word's also used to describe sexual intimacy. For example, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she bore a son. And so it's describing the depth of intimacy, this word knowledge, and so to to know God is not just to have facts about him, but to have an intimate relationship with him. To have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, and that is eternal life. is to know God, to know Him now, and to know Him into eternity. And that relationship begins by turning and putting your belief in Jesus, not just as facts and knowledge, but as a person that you know and encounter and know deeply and that you know personally. Having this goal to know God and Jesus and to make Him known that others would know God and Jesus Jesus sends his followers into the world. Notice his specific request. I do not ask. I am not asking you, Father. I, am, I do not want, I do not ask. This is not what I was seeking to do here. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. I don't want them removed. I don't want them isolated. Indeed, as you sent me into the world... How does God send Jesus into the world? Into the darkness, into the hurting, into the brokenness, into the places where people oppose him. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Word here to when he says this, he says, and you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. He doesn't just send us in the world. I mean, if you imagine that there is a soldier who goes, who is sent in battle. There's one thing to be sent by the battle. There's one thing to be sent near the battle. It is another thing to be sent into the battle. It means to be deeply engaged. And for Jesus to send us, his followers, into the world means to be deeply engaged with people who are radically different from you and who believe beliefs that are very different from yours. That is what God did when he sent Jesus into the world. I have sent you... As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And Jesus was described by Scripture that he was one who was set apart from sinners. He did not himself sin, and at the same time, Scripture describes him as one who was a friend of sinners. Here are several different reflections on what this means. Tim Keller characterizes it. He says, to be sent into the world means to actually be deeply engaged. Yes, Yes, it means to love the world. For God so loved the world, as John 3.16 says. It means to love the world, but in no way to be seduced by or attracted to it. And then he contrasts this. People who are out of the world are afraid and disdainful of it. People who are out of the world are afraid and disdainful of it. People who are of the world are attracted to it. But to be into the world means to be deeply engaged in it and utterly unattracted to it. To be deeply engaged in it and utterly unattracted to it. Reflecting on this idea, one New Testament scholar reflects on this and says, our Christian lives can easily become monastic. That is, like we're living in a monastery withdrawn, isolated, separated. Our Christian lives can easily become monastic. We often find our lives arranged so that we are around non-believers as little as possible. We attend Bible studies that are 100% Christian, Sunday schools that are 100% Christian, and church services that we hope are 100% Christian. Now, to be clear, I hope and I actively pray that our church services are not 100% Christian. In fact, I hope that they are, uh, there is a significant portion of our church services that are not Christian. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, we're glad that you're here. And wherever you are in your spiritual journey, now, if you've had bad experiences with the church, bad experiences with God, that you've wanted to figure this out in some regard, wherever you are, our desire is just to help you take the next step in your spiritual journey. I do believe that honest questions deserve honest answers. And quite frankly, as I've talked with many non-Christians, the answers that they have had to honest questions or have been given to them by Christians frankly aren't very good answers or the questions are avoided. Honest questions deserve honest answers. And so wherever you are in your spiritual journey, our desire is to help you take the next step to know God and to know what it means to experience him and have a relationship with him. But how easy it is for our lives to become monastic like we're living in a monastery. Rebecca Manley Peppert, who wrote a book, Many of you, might, some of you might know from a decade or more ago, called Out of the Salt Shaker. She gives this observation about Christian students on campus, and you could easily substitute your home or neighborhood. Instead of dormitory, say your house. Instead of classes, say your workplace. Here's what she writes. She says, we, not, we must not become, as John Stott puts it, a rabbit hole Christian. We must not become a rabbit hole Christian. The kind who pops his head out of a hole, leaves his Christian roommate in the morning, and scurries to class only to frantically search for a Christian to sit by. What an odd way to approach a mission field. Thus, he proceeds from class to class looking for a Christian to sit by, and when dinner comes, he sits with the Christians in his dorm at one huge table, and he thinks, wow, what a witness to have all of us Christians sitting together. From there, he goes to his all-Christian Bible study, and he might even catch a prayer meeting where the Christians pray for the non-believers on his floor. But what luck that they are able to live on the only floor with 17 Christians. Then at night, he scurries back to his Christian roommate, safe. He made it through the day, and his only contact with the world were those mad, brave dashes to and from Christian activities. She comments, What an insidious reversal of the command to be salt and light in the world. And we're all susceptible to this. For me, I work in a Christian workplace. In fact, I try to share the gospel with the other pastors on staff, but they regularly convince me that they already believe it, (laughs) which is quite a good thing. (laughs) What it means for me is it means I need to find patterns and rhythms in my life to engage with non-Christians for their sake and for my own, and for my own sake. Kent Hughes, who is a New Testament scholar at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, similarly comments. He says, it is possible to go womb to tomb in a hermetically sealed container decorated with fish stickers, It is possible to abandon our culture to the devil. It is interesting to note that though Moses, Elijah, and Jonah all asked to be taken out of the world, not one of their requests was granted. We need to ask ourselves honestly if we have functionally removed ourselves from the world. Jesus prays that we will not. Jesus prays for us as those who have been sent into the world. Now, when you consider these two errors, these two ways of forsaking Jesus by isolation or by assimilation, the pious excuse their behavior of isolation. They say, well, you know, it's it's better for me to, if I'm going to err, it's better for me to err on the side of isolation than on the side of assimilation. Really? Really? It's better for me to err on the side of grievous disobedience to Jesus than on the side of grievous disobedience to Jesus. How does that make sense? It's better to err on the side of fusing my faith with the sinful desires and lusts and idols of my own heart than fusing my faith with the sinful desires and fears of those out in the world. It is better to be a branch that is attached to the vine and not bearing fruit than a branch that is not attached to the vine even though Jesus makes clear that both are gathered up, cut off, and thrown into the fire. The point is this. Forsaking Jesus is not better than forsaking Jesus. Forsaking Jesus, forsaking his commands, forsaking following him, is not better than forsaking Jesus and not following him. For as the Father has sent me, Jesus says, even so I am sending you. Well, how do you follow Jesus as one who has sent? We don't need to make this overly complicated, It just simply means having genuine friendships with those who do not believe what you believe. The key word there is genuine friendships, where you actually engage in relationships with people that you care about, who don't believe what you believe. And when I say genuine friendships, that also means that you are honest about your faith, and you're honest about being a follower of Jesus. And so when someone asks you, how was your weekend?, you don't say, oh, that was, it was just fine. You say something like, well, how's my weekend? Well, we had a sports game on Saturday, and then I went to church on Sunday, and I heard the most amazing sermon ever. Or I went to church on Sunday, and the sermon was really off, and he's been missing it for the last month. But it was so good to gather together with God's people. It was so good to be in a relationship with people that you're united with others or you're genuine with your life and you're genuine with your faith and you say something like, if you're in a challenging workplace environment, where you say something to your friend, because friends share life, you say something to your friend, well, how's it going? They, say you, they chat and they say, well, how's it going for you? And you say, well, you know, you know, as a follower of Jesus, I'm having a really hard time loving those who are opposed to us right now. It's just an honest statement. It's just being a genuine friend and having a genuine friendship with others who don't believe what you believe. And so there is an there is an error there is a way to forsake Jesus by isolation which Jesus prays against. You are sent into the world. And there is also a grievous error by assimilation which Jesus also prays against. And so he prays for his followers as they are sent into the world, and as they are sent into the world against isolation, he prays that they would not be assimilated, but instead that they would be sanctified, that his followers would be sent and sanctified, both of these two things going together. See this in verse 17, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. What then is he praying for? That you keep them from the evil one that you protect them as they enter into the darkness, the wickedness, and the attraction of this world. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. And then he prays and he says this, and I want you to notice the structure of these three verses. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. By the way, next week we're going to be focusing on this aspect of the word and truth and how that plays into this whole thing. It says, sanctify them in the truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in the truth. Notice the structure. They are sanctified. Prayer for sanctification. Prayer for sent. Prayer for sanctification. That the sending is encompassed by this aspect of sanctification, of being sanctified. It is surrounded by it. It is sandwiched by it. That they would not be assimilated, but that they would be sanctified. That these two things, being sent and sanctified, necessarily need to go together. And the command is to do both. To be sent and sanctified. To be sanctified while you're sent. Scripture makes this clear. Another place that says this similarly is James one twenty-seven. This is one command, not two. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God our Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to, keep them, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. It is one command, not two. It is not, what is pure religion? To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. No, it is one command, joined together, that you are sent and sanctified. Why do these two go together? To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to be once unstained keep oneself unstained from the world because when you visit orphans and widows in their affliction and you enter into their suffering and into their broken, it is very difficult to not be stained by the world while doing so. And what what sets the followers of Jesus apart is both. They visit them and they're unstained. They are sent and they are sanctified. The command is to do both of these things together. This is what the Lord, our Lord, prays for you. This is what Jesus most prays for for you. Is this what you most pray for for you? That you would be sent and sanctified. Word here for sanctify has got three different categories of meaning that are all that are tied together in this passage. One word, to sanctify, means to make holy, to, for to become holy, to increasingly become holy. I think that's probably the aspect of the term that Christians like the least, because we say, make holy. In fact, if you look at the self-help book aisle in the Christian bookstore or any other bookstore, religious spirituality, you will find books on joy, you will find books on... Uh, knowing God, you'll find books on spiritual experience, you'll find books on prayer. You will not find a title that advertises holiness and what it pursues after. And the reason I think why we do not, why we resist against this idea of holiness is because we say, well, holiness, that's not fun. That doesn't sound fun. Holiness is not fun. One of my favorite experiences of my life was I was with Gloria Kohler before she passed away, and she was uh, telling me her perspective on the world that she insisted that I share with other people. And so she said, do you know what the problem with you preachers is? I said, please tell me, because she was going to tell me either way or not, right? She said, do you know what the problem with you preachers is? She said, the thing that you preachers don't tell people is this. Sin is fun. Sin is really, really fun. And in my life, I had a lot of fun. <laughs> like, okay. And she goes, and the problem with that is this, is that you guys tell people that sin's bad, sin does bad things. And then what happens is that someone goes out and they start sitting and they're like, whoa, this is actually pretty fun. I kind of like this. They don't know what they're talking about. And I said, okay, Gloria, um, Sin is fun. Fair enough. Um, Well, why not keep on sinning? Without batting an eyelash, she says, because of the cost. And the cost is not fun. And the cost is not worth the fun. And she said, my husband and I, we smoke two smacks of cigarettes a day, two packs of cigarettes a day. She said, and I enjoyed and savored every puff of every one of those cigarettes. She said, we smoked so much that our house had tar streaks up and down the walls. And then her husband died rapidly of lung cancer. And then she too died of lung cancer. And yet she would readily say that though other sins are not as visible, they are just as costly. And we who are enlightened to modern health, would scoff at someone who has smoked so much that the, house, the walls of their house is stained with tobacco tar. And we would scoff at that. Yet what sins in your life do you so quickly excuse because they're pleasurable and enjoyable? And indeed, Gloria's perspective on sin is exactly what Scripture teaches. It is exactly what it teaches. Proverbs says this, For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. For the lips of a forbidden woman, if you tasted them, they are so sweet. They drip honey. They are so good. They are so smooth. Have you tried this? Have you tried this? It is so good. Ah, yes, it is so good. That is so delicious. but the cost is death. And so Proverbs says exactly what Gloria says. So Jesus says that he prays that we would be set apart, that we would be sanctified, and to be sanctified means to make holy. So here is my definition of holiness. Holiness is the ecstasy of life without the guilt. Holiness is the feeling of enjoyment with no negative consequences. Holiness is the experience of delight without anything being shameful or needing to be ashamed of. Holiness is the contentment and the deep-seated peace that comes without envy of missing out. Holiness is pure celebration Without the hangover, holiness is both sweet on the lips and sweet in the soul. Jonathan Edwards, who is one of the greatest theologians that American soil has ever produced, he describes holiness as a calm ecstasy, calm not in that it's quiet but calm in that it comes from a heart that is full of joy and contentment that is not unsettled and he says. Edward says this, We are apt to think since childhood that holiness is a melancholy, morose, sour, and unpleasant thing, but it is the highest beauty. It is a calm ecstasy. It makes the soul love itself, and it makes the soul sense the whole world. The sun, the fields, and the trees are congratulating, embracing, and singing to it. Have you ever had the experience where you've been feeling sorry for yourself and then you walk outside on a beautiful day and you realize how incredibly blessed you are. That your eyes are open to the beauty of the world and the beauty of the creation and the birds are singing and you realize how wonderful and how amazing God's world is and all that God has done for you. What holiness is, it is the celebration of who God is and who you are and what you think and what you do, feel, and in what you do. It is the ecstasy of knowing him intimately and knowing him personally. To be sanctified, to be made holy. It is what Jesus most prays for you. That you would be sent into the world, but that the world would have no appeal for you. It would have no appeal for you because you are experiencing the ecstasy of knowing Jesus Christ. Sent and sanctified. Sent and made holy. Second usage of the term sancti- to sanctify in this passage comes from the term here. It means to be made holy. It also means to be set apart, to be set apart for a particular purpose. So there were chairs in the temple that were declared as holy, right? Like, how can a chair be holy? It wasn't mystical or magical. It was just that the chair was set apart and dedicated for a particular purpose or for a particular usage, And maybe you've done this in your own life. Maybe you're one who has trained for the Marine Corps Marathon. And you decided that you're going to run the Marine Corps Marathon. So what do you do? You set yourself apart for this goal. And being set apart for the Marine Corps Marathon, what you do on your weekends and what you do on your daytime is determined by what you are set apart for. In fact, your whole life is organized around this. What you eat, what you do, it is set apart for this one goal. Now you do other stuff, you hang out with friends, you still go to work, but everything becomes subservient to the one goal for which you have now set apart to run this race and to run it with perseverance. What have we been set apart for? What have we been sanctified for? Knowing Jesus and making him known. Everything else becomes subservient to that goal. He prays that we would be sanctified in the truth, set apart by the truth, set apart for the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done that others would know him and others would come to know the joy of a relationship with him. But the challenge of disciples in every generation is these two tensions, to be sent into the world and to be sanctified in it. And so there are probably some here today who need to repent because they have forsaken Jesus by deliberately isolating themselves from the world, and they have forsaken Jesus' command and forsaken what Jesus called them to do. But there are probably others of us who need to repent on the other side because you have assimilated into the world in that... You've assimilated in the world and adopting the life and behavior and the values of the world. In fact, maybe your desire is that you don't want to be any different from the world and you want to be accepted and highly regarded by the world. You want to be viewed as experienced and knowledgeable in the things of the world. And so you assimilate into it. Or, another way to assimilate is that you hide your faith. You don't want to be known as a Christian because you're afraid that's going to impact your career or your relationships or your reputation. So you say, well, I separate my work life from my religious life. And to that, Jesus would remind you, you, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him, will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And Paul, who, had every, you know, who as he went into society and was persecuted for his faith, had the choice of whether to hide it or not, whether to be ashamed of the gospel or not, proclaims, No! I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has believed. I'm not ashamed of this truth, because those who are in darkness, who are in this world into which I have been sent, need to know this one profound truth, that we have been sent and sanctified, sent and set apart, that the world may know Jesus, that the world would know and experience the calm ecstasy of a relationship With the King of Kings. Again, it is what our Lord most prayed for for you. May it be what we most pray for for us. Sent and sanctified, sent and made holy, sent and set apart for the goal of making him known. There's a third aspect here of the usage of sanctify that is necessary for the other ones. And it's the way that Jesus has been sanctified in a way that we have not been. And it tells us this in verse 19. He says, And for their sakes, and for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. The word here consecrate is correct translation. But what we miss is that it's the exact same word as sanctify. The word has been repeated multiple times in this passage. And so one way that you could read this is Jesus says, and for their sake, for my disciples' sake, for them, I sanctify myself, that they may be sanctified in the truth. Now, Jesus is not sanctified in that he is being made holy because he already is is holy. And he's not being sanctified as one who has been set apart because he already, already has been set apart because he is one, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He has been set apart, sent into the world, so that people would believe in him. But there's another usage, which is this, as D.A. Carson says, let's remember that there is an original, original, original meaning to this word. And the original, original, original meaning to this word means to cut off and to remove, to separate by cutting it off much like the top layer of a wedding cake is cut off and separated for the particular purpose of a one-year anniversary. And so it is cut off. And Jesus says, for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. What he is identifying is that what is needed... For you and for me to be sanctified, to be made holy, and to be set apart for this purpose, what is necessary for us to be sanctified is for him to be cut off. And indeed, Isaiah identifies and says, by oppression and a judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was, Jesus, cut off? out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. Why was Jesus cut off? He was cut off for the transgressions, that is, the willful violations of his people. And Jesus, through his life and his death on the cross, as he was there on the cross, he was cut off in his relationship with the Father, so that you and I and we in this world would not be cut off from a relationship with the Father, but rather that we could have a relationship with the Father through faith in Jesus Christ so that we could know the Father and know the Son and know the ecstasy that comes through a relationship with Him. Jesus prayed that His followers would not practice isolation nor assimilation, but mission. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. We have been sent. May we be sanctified. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Heavenly Father, Father, I praise you that you sent Jesus into this world. I thank you for Jesus' obedience coming into this world. He was not removed from it, He was not distant from it, but He came into the darkness, into the oppression into the hurts, into the sinful behaviors, into the sin and misery of this world, into those that would hate him and hate what he offered and what he brings. But Lord, he came into this world so that we could be set free from this world. He came as one who is both separate from sin, but friends of sinners. And as the Father has sent Jesus, so too you have sent us, Lord Jesus. May we be people who are separate from sin, but friends of sinners for their sake and for our sake, that the world may know, that we may know and experience the joy and delight and the ecstasy of a relationship with you. In your name we pray, amen.